Thank you for having us here today. Mary and I are just very grateful to be here. We thank Paul, we thank Claude, we thank so many of our friends. And uh, it's really quite an emotional time. I'm just weeping through, especially one of the hymns, just touched my heart. I love English, a little bit of a poet, but you live in another language and you have to speak and preach in Spanish. You really miss being back in English. But um, it's wonderful to be back in America. And uh, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. Thanksgiving is a good time to come back. Good time to reflect. Uh, for those who don't know us, uh, my wife is a Wilmingtonian. Mary uh, really was born in Raleigh, grew up here from the first year of her life. My mom is from South Carolina. I really didn't come to Wilmington until I was 25, 1971. But even though I talk like a Yankee, I'm not a Yankee. I uh, really am a Southerner in heart. My value, my ethos values, everything. Um, <clears throat> I was converted at 25 years of age. My dad had been Jewish. My mom was a Southern Baptist, came, came a Jew. Uh, she's, all my family's safe, praise the Lord now, by the grace of God. But uh, I arrived in Wilmington the, the year of my conversion, in 1971. Uh, in 1978, after some preparation, we left for Mexico as missionaries. Uh, independent missionaries, and we preached the gospel for, for four years in Mexico. And then in 1983, we left for Spain as missionaries with Worldwide Evangelization for Christ, one of the large international missions. I've heard of C.T. Studd. Uh, he founded uh, WEC International. And <clears throat> in Mexico, when we arrived, we first started to preach the gospel among the university students. I mean, I had studied economics for many years, Lehigh and Cambridge University, Harvard. And they, I, I started as a, as a university professor at the University of Americas and began to preach the gospel and we had some success and some blessing. And God gave us a, a significant group among the students and the faculty that began to prosper. And it turned out over time to be the Amistad Cristiana de Puebla, which is a congregation today that has 6,000 members right in front of where our house was. It grew from that group to 6,000 members, over 80 other congregations, many, you know, mega churches with numbers of thousands of people, and even 30 of those people have followed us over to Spain to work in our Batel ministries. But in, 19, in 1982, God called us out of Mexico and called us to Spain, which was a nation of about 40 million people then. Just one-tenth of one percent of Spain was evangelical Christian. It, most Muslim nations in the world have more Christians than Spain. And um, so we tried to do the same thing that we did in, 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 in Mexico. We went to the universities, the University Complutense de Madrid and the University of Alcalá and other places. But they, the university students had no interest whatsoever in Christ or in God. The elite had no interest. And we discovered that the people that were listening were the drug addicts and the alcoholics and the prostitutes and the poor and the outcasts and the marginalized. And so we took the people God gave us. We went for one class of people, went for the elite, and we ended up getting the lowest of low criminal element of the, of the country. And uh, Battelle really started as a church planning effort in our living room in our home in 1983. We had the first public meetings. Nobody attended for three months. Just uh, opened the door, and we had, you know, just us and another missionary were there. But then the, the, the parents of the drug addicts began to attend and began to refer drug addicts to other centers like Teen Challenge and uh, Repto and Remar. 
1986, we finally started our own first residence for, for drug addicts. There was no other places, there were no places to send addicts. And that first uh, center uh, started in a flat on the eighth floor of a, of a home just across the street from our house. And Lindsay McKinsey, an Australian wet missionary's home, was working with us. And then from that flat, we moved to a rented little farm outside the airport in Madrid. And then another property, another property. And now after 20 years, Battelle is now in 15 countries, counting Ireland, our newest country, in over 70 cities. And over 100,000 people have come to live in our homes around the world. And 29 churches have grown out of that and dozens of other embryonic church plants and a whole series of Christian businesses to finance a program. Imagine taking care of 100,000 people and not charging them any money. And we've built Christian, you know, all kinds of, you know, furniture sales and like charity shops like the Salvation Army and painting and animal husbandry and water buffalo in India, merino sheep in Mexico and chickens and cleaning and painting and building and you name it. We do anything. We're even, we're even the second largest seller of antique furniture in Great Britain over the Internet. If you look on Arc Antiques, Battelle, you see Battelle. We do, we do, you know, we generate income to provide. We have 1,600 people living. In, we have about 250 properties now around the world, 144 residences, over 100 business properties, church properties. And all of this began with one drug addict in Sambas 20 years ago, preaching a simple primitive gospel. Now, uh, there's, there's just, I, I want to tell, I want to tell you something about Patel. I want to preach this morning. And, uh, I have to do it in English, which is going to be hard, but we'll do it. Patel has one single vision, one single ethos. And, and that is to plant churches and to, to, to build rehab communities and to build Christian, uh, businesses that generate income to support the projects. And our simple goal is to see the kingdom of God planted in the earth, the church planted in the earth, and to spread the gospel beginning in all the major cities of the world, in the inner cities and among marginalized peoples. That is our single vision and our goal. And, uh, you know, what, what is, what, what is Battelle? Uh, Battelle is basically uh, a ministry that goes to the most outcast and broken peoples, and shares a simple, primitive gospel with them that transforms their lives, turns them into princes of God, and then those people build communities which turn into churches, which multiply and clone off and start other communities and churches and businesses around the world, and spread the gospel like it's being spread right now. Uh, we have, we've had over 100,000 people come and live in our homes in the last 20 years, we have a resident community, usually about 1,600. Obviously, there's a ter- you know, big turnover. Most people come in, maybe one out of six, one out of seven, one out of five, depending on the country. One out of ten will stay a whole year with us. But over, when you deal with large numbers, you get people who meet Christ, are born again, transformed, and who are willing to step into the ministry. We have now 56 ordained ex-heroin addicts and their pastors. And only one of our ministers has a university education. And about 24 WEC missionaries and Amistad missionaries from Mexico that followed us, working with us. Now, uh, Battelle is simply just a church planning ministry that's preaching a simple gospel and trying to imitate the, the, the primitive church, primitive Christianity, 
and complementing that with the, the complementing the spoken, declared word of God with a social ministry that meets a felt need that no one else meets. And we have found that that is a very successful way to preach the gospel among the nations. In fact, it's an anomaly because if you know anything about Europe, Europe after Islam is the darkest place on the earth. There's less faith in Europe than any place else in the world. And Betel has grown and become a church planning movement, a people movement, in a place that is really uh, in declension and going backward and turning away from God in great numbers. The Catholic Church is almost disappearing. The uh, Protestant Church is evaporating. The Evangelical Church is just very, very stagnant. There's a few points of light throughout Europe, a few encouraging spots. Eastern Europe is doing much better than Western Europe. But Patel is an anomaly that has gone against that current because God has chosen to use broken and outcast peoples to preach his gospel. Now, uh, the question is this, you know, you know why has Batel grown so quickly? And why, why has Batel extended itself beyond the single poor barrio of San Blas to touch the nations? And why have all of a sudden we seen a group of people in a nation that's uninterested in God embrace the gospel and embrace the Great Commission and take the gospel message to over 70 nations I mean, Battelle is now, we're making plans, to, the Battelle book is being translated into Mandarin to go into China, being translated into Portuguese for Brazil. It's been translated into Korean and Finnish and Spanish and English and Russian. And it's, why, how can a people like that take the gospel to the nations? Now, the other question is, why has Battelle defied the tide of unbelief and the spiritual decline in secular Europe. Because after, after Islam, Europe is the darkest continent. And if Islam has its way with its campaign of mass migration and uh, large families, in a short while, Europe will be called Eurabia. And the largest block of unbelief in the world is there. How did Battelle defy that to become a missionary sending movement in a place like that? And the answer is this, very simply. It's a phrase that I've used over years. It's because Battelle was birthed on the edge of eternity. And Battelle lives on the edge of eternity. And Battelle still lives on the edge of eternity. And what, what do I mean by Battelle is, was birthed on the edge of eternity? It's because in the beginning, 50% of the people who came to us were HIV positive. Imagine uh, the, the Dutch National Television did, a, did a, a documentary a number of years ago on Battelle, and it was called Half the Church Has AIDS. And so in the early years, for at least the first decade of our history, one half of our people were HIV positive. And before the advent of the new medicines, every week, every two weeks, we were celebrating funerals. Almost to, Today, almost none of our first people, none of the first and second generation of the people that were with us are alive. They're all dead to AIDS. And, and, and now, after the advent of uh, better medication and uh, technological advances and changes in, in drug habit use, people injecting less, we have about 20% of Battelle in Spain is HIV positive. It's dropped from 50 to 20%. And with the new medicine, we haven't seen anybody die from AIDS in the last seven or eight years, by the grace of God. They die from other things, liver cancer, hepatitis, other, other contagious diseases, but they don't die from AIDS like they used to. And um, 
uh, but still in places like Patel in India. We now in four states of India. We send Spanish drug addict missionaries to India. We, raise, we now have over 200 people living in community in, in uh, Jodhpur, Rajasthan, Gurgaon of, uh, of Delhi, uh, Guwati of uh, Assam, Dimapur of Nagaland, and plans to go in all 30 states of India in the next five years. In India, over 50% of our people are HIV positive with AIDS. In Russia, we have four regions of Russia now, and uh, the Russian government gave us an old young pioneers camp in, uh, in Kolosov, near the Finnish border, 14 buildings. That's our base. We moved from Kolosov and Viborg to, to central St. Petersburg, south St. Petersburg, and to Moscow, and ready to go and send teams and clone off communities and churches to all of, all of Russia. Over 50% of our Russian detalitos are HIV positive. And they all, they all carry the sentence of death within them. Which, um, which explains the seriousness with which we take the gospel. The reason why we believe in heaven and hell and, and the reason why people you know, leave their old lives behind and flee to Christ and are willing to invest their lives in the ministry and to be missionaries to preach the gospel because of the sentence of death that they carry within them. Now, uh, it, it's, it's that edge of hard reality, it's that cutting edge it cuts right to the heart and makes us serious about Christ. Makes the, our Christianity have, have a, a, a primitive New Testament tone. And it's something that uh, we don't often see in the West. Now, I said that we used to be 50% HIV positive in Madrid and the new medicines have, have, have delivered us from you know, that, that death that was, that, was, that was taking all our people. But... Uh, we're still not fully delivered because mo- mo- many of our people, I don't know what percentage, it's 30 or 40 percent, have hepatitis C from their own lives. And of any medical people here, you know, it's a very serious condition. It's almost, there are some things that can be done, but it's, it's even, it's, it's, there's less hope with hepatitis C than if you have AIDS now to live a long life. And our, our Nines, one of our pastors in Madrid, she and her husband Oscar, from the early Betelitos, she, she was HIV positive, she had hepatitis C, and other, other ailments, and uh, she, was, she was dying, and about three years ago, she received a liver transplant. She was the first female HIV-positive per- person in Spain to receive a liver transplant. And then she became the first female in the whole world to deliver a healthy child, HIV-positive, hepatitis C, liver transplant, and she became world-famous with people doing documentaries on her life and coming to Betel. And we were so happy that, that Nines had... Uh, received a reprieve and was able to live a, you know, a, a, a new life and have a child. But I received a phone call just a few days ago that her liver is not doing right, her new liver. And her aminasas, I don't know what that is in English, but her the blood, uh, when they test your blood, and her liver is not functioning properly. She's back in the hospital with biopsies. You need to, so even after all the technological advances, we still have a sentence of death that seems to stalk us and keeps us on the edge of eternity, and keeps us fresh with God, and alive in the fear of God, and preaching the gospel. Now, we, we rejoice at, at the deliverance of Nines, at uh, God's intervention in science, and we rejoice at the extra years that, that, that have been given her, but we're still living on the edge of eternity. Now, I want to preach this morning, if I can, and I want to talk about living on the edge of eternity and about life and about death. 
Now, for, for thinking people, what, what should be our attitude towards death as Christians, towards sickness, towards AIDS, towards hepatitis, towards transplants, towards eternal life? And, and, and should we stay dead so that people can live the longest life possible? And my answer would be yes. How many people think we should stay dead to live the longest life possible on the earth? I do. Now, the question is, but, how, but what happens if you can't stay dead? And what happens if death seems to stalk you? And what, what can God do when that happens? How can he use that? For the preaching of the gospel. And the question is, how, you know, should we stay deaf, natural deaf, and how long should we stay deaf? And how can we stay deaf legitimately? What means can we use to keep people alive naturally? And, and what would Jesus do? And what would the apostles and the prophets think? And what has death to do with the preaching of the gospel and the kingdom of God? And the simple answer is this. Absolutely everything. Death has absolutely everything to do with what we're doing here this morning in this church. Death has absolutely everything to do with the reason why missionaries preach the gospel. Death has absolutely everything to do with everything that we do if we see death in the light that Christ sees it, in the light of eternity. Now, Jesus came and he he lived and he died and he rose again to destroy death. And to win a final complete victory over death. And, and to bring in eternal life. And, and that is the hope and the power of the gospel. And that is all that the tell is all about. Delivering people from death. We're giving them a hope beyond natural death. And leading them to Christ. And the power of Christ and the gospel to bring eternal life. That is all that we're about. Uh, if Paul said that I'm passionate, there's one thing I'm passionate about. It's about eternal life. And it's about delivering men from death. Now, in the book of Job, if you have it in your Bible, in chapter 38, verse, verse 17, Job 38, 17. It says, God begins speaking to Job and he says, Have the gates of death been opened unto thee? Or hast thou seen the doors of the shadow of death? Hast thou perceived the breadth of the earth? Declare if thou knowest it all. Where is the way where light dwelleth? And as for darkness, where is the place thereof? And thou, sh- and that thou shouldest take it to the bound thereof, that thou shouldest know the pass to the house thereof. And the question is this, have the gates of death been opened unto thee? Or hast thou seen the doors of the shadow of death? What, what do we know about death? And where is the way where light dwelleth? And where is the place of darkness and death? What do we really know about life and death? What do we know beyond this life? What what, what do we know about what waits man after death? But then on the other hand, we don't really want to know much about death. Nobody really wants to know a whole lot. No one wants to face the reality that men are mortal and men will die. And on the other side of this life, There's something waiting us, awaiting us. And then on the other hand, we don't want to know, but we're obsessed with death and we're obsessed with escaping from death. And I would say, and I think I'm very, very clear on this, that uh, 
the, the principal desire of the human race is to live and not to die and not to see death. The principal motivating, most powerful motivating force in the universe is the desire not to die and not to seek death. Now, uh, I asked the question, what made Battelle grow and become an anomaly flowing against secular humanism and secular materialism? Against, you know, the, the Islam, we have converted Muslims in Battelle. We're converting Muslims. We baptize four Muslims in Melilla. We have two centers in North Africa. We're baptizing Muslims in India, Muslims in Marseille, Muslims in Spain right now. What is it that makes the gospel work in, in a world and in an environment that rejects the gospel when it doesn't seem to function so well being preached under normal conditions? And the answer is that the gospel will function against the tide of unbelief when men are made to realize that, the, that only Christ can deliver them from death. See, Christ is the only answer to deliver men from death. Now, I can say this. Uh, my life changed 35 years ago. I'm 60 years old now. I know I look much younger. But, no. but I, I'm, I'm 60 this year. I, I was converted at 25. My father was Jewish. I grew up in the synagogue. My mother was a Southern Baptist from Dillon, South Carolina. And, and I had, I believed in God, but I had just a deistic, I was, wasn't even really a practicing Jew. I had sort of, I believed in God, but I had no real concept of who God was. And I was, I was, I was up at Harvard University, living in a commune, studying. I somehow managed to graduate, even doing drugs. And, and one day, in 1971, I was walking along the edge of the Charles River. I wasn't taking LSD, I wasn't taking any drugs. And, but I was destroying my life. I was, I, was on a, I was on a course that would absolutely destroy my life. And I was searching. Right? And I was reading books. And I was reading Hinduism and Buddhism. I read the Bible. I, I, was, I was searching the occult and the New Age. Searching everywhere. And then I heard the audible voice of God say, Give me your heart. And then God lifted me up out of my body. Opened the heavens and showed me just a glimpse of eternity. And the New Jerusalem. And he said, and I knew just in that one moment, everything that I sought for was in God. And I said, yes, Lord, but not today, tomorrow. There's still things I want to do. And when I said that, I was brought right back down to the Charles River. The earth was open, and I was shown a vision of hell. And I didn't even believe in hell. I didn't believe that if God was good, there would be a hell. And I saw a vision on an inclined plane descending into the lake of fire. And I saw demons and devils and lost souls. I saw that mirror reflection, the absolute opposite of heaven. The place where there wasn't love, but there was hate. The place where there wasn't beauty, but there was this ugliness and corruption. And I saw, I saw, the, I saw souls separated for all eternity from Christ, from God. And, and I cried out. I tried to walk out of the vision that was so real I couldn't walk out. I, I, I began to walk through the streets of Boston in the dead of winter. I began to take my clothes off to offer myself to God. I was losing my mind. And I threw myself through a plate glass window in an, an old uh, automobile showroom. And the, got cut severely in my arm and my shoulder. And I was bleeding very severely. The police came and took me to the Alston Hospital. And in those, that, those few moments before they, they attended me in the emergency room, I cried out for mercy. 
And I said, Lord, have mercy on me. Forgive me. I'm a sinner. And when I said that, Jesus entered the emergency room, just filled it with his light, and he touched me and he said, what are you dying for? I want you to live and have many children. And I was born again right there on that table. And from that moment, my life turned and I have never been the same ever since. And, I, and, and it, it, people say it must have been a hallucination of drugs. The truth is, I changed. I never took drugs. I went right down the mainstream of Christianity, right down. Nothing weird, nothing strange. You know, right down the evangelical reform pathway of God. And for that reason, I believe in heaven and I believe in hell. And I believe that Jesus Christ is the only answer, the only answer, the only one who can deliver us from death. Now, um, I can say this. I no longer want to merely live, but I want eternal life. And I, and I no longer fear death, but I have much reason, we all have much reason, to fear the second death. See, there's death, and then there's a second death. And I, I don't fear death. But I do fear ever being separated from Christ in eternity. Uh, just in, in October, I was invited to speak in, 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 in Egypt at the, the ISAC World Congress on, uh, of Christian Rehabilitation Centers. For four years, I was the president of the ISAC in the world, about 400 Christian ministries uh, around the world, all, you know, all the different continents. And uh, they asked me to be, be uh, to be the open open the Congress and speak. And they also asked Dr. Dixon, who is a futurist, a Christian futurist from Great Britain. You've probably seen his books. In the, you sell them in, the, in, in your bookstore. He's one of the most famous Christian futurists. He's the Christian expert on AIDS. He's the Christian expert on you know the Christian response to politics in Britain. He's a Christian expert on eco, Christian ecological. He's just a genius, amazing, amazing man, Dr. Dixon. So he and I were speaking. And I couldn't stay for the whole Congress, and he couldn't stay for the whole Congress. He had to speak in Japan. I had to return to Spain for a uh, conference. And so they, 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 they drove us in, in a van from, the, from the, the conference center on the Red Sea to Cairo. And uh, it, it, he's an extraordinary man. I mean, he's a great thinker, a great futurist. We spoke about many things. We talked about addiction, about government policy, about harm reduction, about methadone, about... AIDS about global warming. He's a fanatic about global warming, and I'm a skeptic on global warming. Had a great time talking. And uh, he tried to educate me, and I tried to educate him. And, and my last question with Dr. Dixon, is a two-hour drive from the Red Sea through the, one of the bleakest deserts on the surface of the earth. And, and, uh, and I, I asked him, said, I said, uh, Dr. Dixon, what will be the theme of your next book? He's written so many books. And without any hesitation, he said, and with real passion, he said, my next book is going to be about aging. I'm going to write about aging and dying. And we spoke about, you know, about worms and whales and tortoises and rockfish. And we talked about aging and AIDS and uh, uh, genes and uh, the search for the aging gene. And I did, did... Forgive me if I digress, but this this is germane to what I'm talking about today. Did you know that scientists are isolating the functions and the genes that cause aging and dying? I didn't know that. Are there any scientific people here, any medical people? Okay. Some. Okay. I am not a geneticist. I'm a preacher. 
but uh, so forgive me if I don't get it exactly right. But they're isolating the genes of aging and dying. The uh, there are rockfish that live for over 200 years. Some, there are many, there are about 50 different uh, subspecies of rockfish. The calico rockfish lives for about 12 years. The rough-eyed rockfish lives for 205 years. And you know that they actually have found a difference in the aging gene in the calico rockfish and the rough-eyed rockfish. They're actually beginning to isolate which genes cause people to live longer and which and what, what happens when they're not there or they're there or if they're, they're changed a little bit. And we talked about worms. And we, uh, yeah, we talked about worms. The C. elegans worm. They've been studying it. It has 40% of the human DNA. I mean, we, you know, the DNA is the building blocks of human life. And if you talk about the processes of respiration or Processing energy, you know, primitive animals have the, some of the same genes that we have. The C. elegans worm has 40% of the genes that the human, that humans have. And they have discovered, this is what Dr. Dixon told me, that, that, that the, that the LET-7 gene, the LET-7 gene, controls maturity. And if they, if they change that gene, they can keep the C. elegans worm in a state of perpetual, uh, adolescence. Or youth. And they found out that the, that the, that the DAF2, the DAF2 gene, controls longevity. And if they remove that gene from the embryo, they can cause the worms to live 300% longer. Have three times the lifespan. And now, I'm a missionary and I'm a preacher of the gospel and I'm not a geneticist. So you have to forgive me if, I, if, I'm, if I'm wandering. But it is, I, 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 there's, a, there's reason in this madness. Uh, now, just imagine, just imagine if it were possible to manipulate the LET7 gene so that uh, living organisms could remain forever young. Or just imagine if you could remove the DAF2 gene from human embryos with men living for 300 years, which they're actually talking about doing right now. And there's some, it's, in, it's within the reach of certain people, depending on their ethical standards. And, and um, modern scientists are starting to, according to Dr. Dixon, they're starting to ask, you know, why human life must slavishly follow the path of birth and growth and maintenance and uh, sudden aging and then death, physical death. I mean, the human organism grows, it grows and it it matures, it develops, it's maintained, and it hits a certain wall, and then it suddenly ages and dies. And they're asking, why should that be? And they're even beginning to manipulate nature and certain creatures and studying certain uh, species that have seemed to have gone beyond limits that we consider normal. Now, uh, and they're even wondering if it's possible to manipulate the process, and they ask, why should the wonderful process of life suddenly change course and travel towards death? Now, you have to imagine Dr. Dixon and I are traveling through the desert from the Red Sea to Cairo, and, and we're traveling through one of the most barren places on the earth, a wasteland without vegetation, without signs of life, without water, with, and, and we're developing a theme about extending life beyond its frontiers in a place where there is no life. We got to, we got to Cairo, we got to the airport, and uh, he went to Japan. I went to Spain. 
But I could not stop thinking about our conversation. In fact, I, w- I was provoked to think deeply about the legitimate role that science and modern medicine can play in eliminating aging and death. And I have to say that I was very inquieto, very uh, uncomfortable, very almost disturbed by the encounter with Dr. Dixon. He's a very godly, very Christian man, uh, wonderful man. But I thought his, you know, his, it was just tremendous enthusiasm to break the bounds and let man go on for centuries and centuries. And, uh, and I was provoked to evaluate the, the, those new horizons of that brave new world in the light of the Bible. And the question is this, what should the Christian position be in all this? So that, just listen to me. Some of you have been wondering, you know, what, should, what would Christ say? What's the biblical position? You know, what, would I, what, what, what do I want for me, or for my parents, for my children? You know, you know, what is a Christian position if, if all of a sudden we're getting to a genetic frontier where men can almost live forever without God? Now, uh, the Bible says many things. I'll tell you four things the Bible says. The Bible says, first, that natural death is absolute in every generation. There's, you know, other than Enoch and Elijah, everyone has died. And even Elijah will probably die someday physically before they and be risen from the dead. Natural death is absolute in every generation. It says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it says, Thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou, shalt, thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And of course we know that Adam and Eve disobeyed God, God and they ate from the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they died, it says in Romans 5.12, that says that, you know, that sin, sin entered by one man and by sin death, and death passed to all men, for all have sinned. We know that, 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 that God said that if you disobey, you'll die. And disobedience and sin brought death into the world, and death passed to all men because all men sin after the manner of Adam. Sin is, uh, death is universal, and all men die. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is established on the man once to die, and then the judgment. The second thing I could say, the Bible says about death, is that our natural bodies will return to the dust. In Genesis 3.19, God says, You shall return unto the ground, for out of it thou wast, wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. The third thing we can say, is that we have observed and accepted a general limit of 70 or 80 years of life throughout human history, uh, throughout modern human history, barring wars and famines and plagues, which tend to shorten life. But in all, with with a, a normal environment, there seems to be a barrier about 70, 80 years. There are exceptions, people with strength go on. But even if you look at the, the longest living nations in the earth, Japan and Holland and Spain, Hong Kong, they, 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 their national averages just don't go beyond 80 years, although individuals do, but not the average. It seems to be a barrier that we've observed for thousands of years. In Psalm 90, verse 10, the scripture says, The days of your, our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore. Now, the fourth thing I'll say is this, but also in the Bible, 
there are hints and evidence that this limit is not absolute. Uh, Moses, the author of Psalm 90, himself lived to be 120 years of age. He lived 40 years longer than the limit he set. Joshua lived 110. We know that the antediluvians lived you know, up to 969 years. Uh, and I, and I'm, I was going to mention it, and I thought, no, you'll think I'm not very spiritual, but since I noticed on the front of your program you quoted Tolkien, I can mention it, because I'm, uh, I, I am a Tolkienite. I love Tolkien. C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. But uh, Tolkien talks about the Numenorean kings, you know, like the Antediluvian people who lived for centuries. Literature and myth, every single culture has a tradition of a law of long-lived peoples who lived long ago. Now, um, also in the millennial state, the Bible suggests that physical life will be extended well beyond its present. Now, in the midst of my search for God's mind on aging and death and, and modern man's quest to escape both, I just opened my Bible. I wasn't searching. I opened my Bible. This is, this is a fresh word. This is, this is something God spoke to me just in the last few weeks. I opened my Bible without searching to Mark 9, verse 1, which was read this morning. And the scripture, Mark 9 says, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now, I was amazed because when I opened that, I was one Lord, what are you saying? You know, how, is this right? And I opened the Bible and then I said, some of you will not taste of death till you've seen the kingdom of God come with powder, power. And I was also amazed because that verse for me has been a personal verse. It's been a prayer and a desire of my heart since my early conversion. I said, Lord, please let me see the kingdom of God come with power. Let me see the gospel preached like the early church preached it. Let, let us see signs and wonders and healings and deliverances and thousands coming to Christ and the church growing and spreading through the world like it spread through the, the Mediterranean world in the first century. Lord, let me see all that before I go hence. Before you take me to heaven. I mean, I just, I mean, I don't ask for anything else. Just let my family find you. Let my seed, 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 seed serve you until you come. And let me see the kingdom of God come in power before I die. And by the grace of God, we're beginning to see just a little bit of that coming in power. Now, uh, I believe that most Christians feel as passionately as I do about Mark 9.1. But there are many, even godly Christians, who read 9.1 and are only concerned with the first part of the verse. There are some of them here which shall not taste of death. And they ignore the second part and are quite willing to enjoy the first part in isolation. Men do not want to taste death. And neither do they want to serve God. That's the problem. Men do not want to die, but neither do they want to serve God. Have you noticed that? The men, they want all the benefits, like the prosperity gospel, all the benefits of the gospel, and none of the responsibilities. And what's worse than the prosperity gospel is wanting God to keep you alive, but not to serve Him. To ignore Him all your life, and then expect Him to preserve your life. Um, and men flee from death, and they also flee from God. Some with, with good motives, and some with uh, bad motives, some with altruistic motives, some with selfish, 
some to serve God, some to serve the devil. Uh, our son Peter was married in, uh, in September in Florida. And Peter is now, he's now the university student pastor at St. Old Age at Oxford, the evangelical chaplain of Oxford University. First American. Very proud of young Peter. But we're at Peter's, Peter's wedding in Florida with, with Michelle. And they, her father is an Assembly of God pastor. And they live near the supposed fountain of youth. Hans de Leon's fountain. There's a great uh, natural spring there, a very beautiful place. And we went and we visited the fountain of youth. Now, some, some, some seek to avoid, avoid death, in, and they're, they're, they're innocuous, they're harmless. They're, Ponce de Leon was a Spanish uh, conquistador, caballero, who was just an idealist seeking the fountain of youth. But then some other people uh, throughout history have sought with darker motives and crossed the frontier between light and darkness, seeking magical powers and potions and uh, if, are you familiar with Faust, the, uh, the, the alchemist in German literature and le- legend? He sold his soul to the devil for power, for eternal life, for endless long life, and for happiness. And there are many versions of the, of the Faustian legend. But there's one version that says that he, he, he sold, the devil convinced Faust to sell his soul by sickening an entire town in Germany. With a plague. And then Faust sold his soul to have the power to take away the plague and save the life of the people. And he justified his dealings with the devil and the selling of his soul because he wanted to do good to save lives, but without God. And I would say that Faust's dream is not in search and deal, is not too far off from the dream and the search and the deal that modern medicine and science is making if they do it without God. For good. To help, but without God. Now, I, will, I, should, I should end very soon because it's getting, it's, my time is up. But I have, this, I have this question. Is it good for men not to age or not to die? Let's vote. How, who would like less wrinkles here? I don't want, I want less wrinkles. Right? And, and, uh, who would like more energy, more strength and, and, and quickness of mind and less slowness of mind and less fatigue? Everybody wants to be young. And, and, and who wants to have more or less pains of old age? I want less. <laughs> All these things. This is, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a, you know, a fundamentalist preaching against this. I'm, I'm just trying to, to grapple with it in the light of the gospel. Now, C.S. Lewis, he said that... Uh, we referred to his wrinkles and his old age and his weakening conditions. He said, my wrinkles are, are medals of service and honor. Are medals of, medals of honor and long years of service to my king. So I look the way I look because I've served my king for a long time. Now, do you know what I think? I would say this, that if good men live long lives, it is good. And if bad men live long lives, it's bad. And I'm very glad that Nines and all the Betalitos were given a reprieve. And I, and I hope that she can live for even longer and that she'll come out of this crisis and all the other Betalitos so they can live and preach the gospel and touch lives. And I thank God for science. Do you know that we, we, have, we have Betel doctors all over the world. We've just received a grant and started the first Betel AIDS clinic in India. And we're saving the lives of hundreds of people with medicine in Betel. I am all for science and medicine.
But who knows what people do with their life if it's a long life. Enoch lived 365 years in Genesis 5.24 and Hebrews 11.5. It says Enoch walked with God and he, and he had this testimony that he pleased God. And Enoch used his years well on the earth and his long days on the earth. But I note this, that Enoch, the best man of his age, was taken out of this life prematurely. Enoch is one of the shortest lived antediluvians. He lived for 365 years and was taken away and the others lived for 900 years. The best man God took off the earth quickly. Now, and Noah lived 950 years. He, he was given his commission at 480 years to build the, the ark and to warn men. It took 120 years to complete his task. And then he lived another 350 years after the flood as a surviving antediluvian patriarch. And I would say this, it is essential that the godly elders stay with us as long as possible. That the godly and the good stay on the earth as long as possible. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1, 20, 24, Paul said, I'm in a great strait. You know, to, to depart and be with Christ is much better, but it's better that I stay here for your sake and the gospel. So that it's really much better just to leave this, this, this show, to depart, but I will stay if it furthers the cause of the gospel and it helps you. Now, uh, and I would say, I suppose that the extension of natural life for our sake, for the sake of others is good and perhaps even the greatest good. Now, uh, but I have this question and forgive me for going over. What will happen if bad men discover the secret of long life without God? What, that would probably be the greater evil. If bad men discover the power to live a long time, who would want to live two or three hundred years under the tyranny of, of, of a Stalin or a Hitler or a Mao or a Castro or Saddam Hussein or Bin Laden? Who would like to live three hundred years under the tyranny of men that have unnaturally extended their lives for evil? And, and who, or put it this way, who would want to live two or three hundred years of a mediocre life, 200, 300 years sitting in front of television, two or 300 years watching soap operas and football and CNN and Fox and, and, and all alone. Who would want to live that long on the earth? And, and I wonder if, if man just might not get more and less than what he's searching for in modern science. Because his victory over natural death may actually increase exponentially suffering and evil on the earth. If the wicked live a long time, may actually exponentially increase evil on the earth. It may actually increase banality and boredom on the earth if men try to live without God. And I, and I wonder if what man is doing now isn't a little like man's quest in the construction of the Tower of Babel. Trying to build, get to heaven without God. And I wonder if God's remedy might not just be the same severe judgment that he judged Babel with. Um, now, we'll have to stop. I have to stop. Praise the Lord. Um, we've had 
two recent failures in the Tel of Britain, moral failures. Two of our principal leaders. In fact, I've got a call just, just a few days ago. One of our leaders left her husband, ran off in a lesbian relationship. Another fellow stole the money for a new van, ran off, abandoned his wife and his family. These are the leaders in London and in Birmingham. And our, our, our missionary pastor is saying, why is this happening? How could this happen? What's the problem? And I thought, and I said, you know, in Great Britain, only 2% of our people are HIV positive. 50% in Spain, 50% in Russia and India. There's no sentence of death in them. There's no fear of God in those people. They, life is so easy. The government gives them homes and money and methadone, substitute narcotics. And, and, and they're, 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 they're just, they're just, they just don't confront the reality of living and dying. You don't look like a group of people who are using drugs or HIV positive, but every single one of us is mortal. Everyone here has a sentence of death, whether it happens in one year or two years or five years or ten years or forty years. Everyone here has to confront that. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Father, I ask you to touch our hearts today. But we know that the devil, he wants the throne and he wants the tree of, of, of life, but without you. But you're not going to give him the throne and you're not going to give him the tree of life. But Lord, you've offered us a place at your side as your bride to share your throne. You, 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 you've removed the, 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 the burning a revolving sword that blocked the way to the tree of life. And you want us to come boldly to the throne of grace. You want us to approach with confidence, to, to give us your life, to bring us into union with God. Father, I pray that you would bless this congregation with a faith and a longing and a passion to serve God in their generation whether their lives be long or short. Lord, just let this group matter for God in the light of eternity. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.